Welcome to the DBS Films Podcast, a behind-the-scenes look into making indie films. Learn from DBS Films about their process, tips, and fun stories that all come with making multiple movies a reality. Hey everybody, welcome to DBS Films Podcast. My name is Kellen, with me as always is my brother Brendan, and together we make movies with DBS Films. Today, in part two of our look inside The Haunting of the Murder House, which is our newest movie, it's our 10th film, just released, it is now on Amazon so you can rent it. Be sure to give us a review. Be sure to take a look at our Discord channel as well, too, because we make movies for our fans with our fans, and that's where all the fun action takes place. So be sure to take a look at that. Uh, but in this episode, we are going to go ahead and kind of go through a little bit like a scene-by-scene analysis of what we liked, what we didn't like, in the sense of what we might improve upon. In the first episode, we kind of talked about what the murder house meant to us overall and meant to DBS and the community. Now excited we are for that process. In this episode, I almost kind of want to break down our feelings on the movie because it really is something special in the sense that it's it's finished now. So I think the first thing I kind of want to highlight is, can you kind of explain why when you have that finished done product, how that is then the thing that you always point back to? Because when you're stuck in editing, you can always make slight adjustments. So when you finally do have the finished product, it is almost like allows us to actually take a step back and do a post-mortem on, you know, what it ended up being. Yeah. I mean, it's really twofold. Um, Like what you said is, you know, I've accepted the fact that this is the movie that's going to be released. I really can't change it right now because once it gets sent off to the distribution company um, and they upload it, there's really no going back and fixing it. Um, you can do it. It's going to cost you a lot of money to do it and it's just not worth it. So when you do finally complete something, you hand it off um, and it passes quality control. That's pretty much it. I mean, you, as long as you did the best um, to your ability, then, you know, you have to be satisfied with it. And I think everyone who worked on this project, you know, gave it their all. And I'm very happy with how it turned out. I think everyone's very happy with how it turned out. So you know, now is the point where I can, you know, put on my my um, just producer hat and look at this movie as a, a whole product and really try and be as harsh on myself as I possibly can, because that's honestly how you how you learn. Nobody wants to receive negative reviews, but negative reviews are the most valuable reviews you're going to get. So. I have to really look down, sit down and watch this movie and really kind of just forget that I made it and try and figure out like, all right, what are the things that I could do better next time? Um, And I think the other part of that is until a movie is finally uploaded, the sound can play a huge issue in it. Just music, um, just to get the tone, color correction does, you know, a huge number on just the overall atmosphere of the movie. So if you're kind of sitting around playing in post and you don't have the whole thing completed and wrapped up, um, the final project from, you know, where it is in the post-production could be a completely different project. And we've done this multiple times where I've showed people, you know, a movie without color correction, without proper sound, without, you know, proper mixing. And they say it's absolutely horrible. And then, you know, a month later when we have the final upload, they tell us that, hey, this is, you know, your best movie yet. So I think you have to complete something. You have to give yourself, you know, the critical feedback that you need to learn. Um, And that's just part of the process. I think a lot of indie filmmakers suffer from, you know, getting a final product uploaded and, you know, just giving themselves, you know, the feedback that they need. I think they upload it and they kind of just 
are like, oh, you know, the negative reviews start flowing in, it gets them discouraged, and then they just refuse to look at the project and kind of pretend like it doesn't exist. So their ego doesn't get hurt. So that being said, let's go ahead and jump right in and hurt our egos, because I think the best thing to do is really get a breakdown of the movie. Um, what I'm actually interested in is I'm excited to like rewatch this episode that we do later on, because I feel like as the movie's released, you end up kind of getting more and more towards like more liking of it. Like I remember when the girl in cabin 13 came out, I was so done watching that movie that I just couldn't really kind of go and, and take a look back at it but then you warm up to it and I remember the first time we saw it in uh theaters and whatnot was really cool so that kind of to me kicked it off but the more you look back I think the better it gets so right now I'm, I'm curious to see how critical we are so you know again it is online uh, for you guys to see we're just going to kind of do like a quick rundown um and you know spoilers so make sure you go ahead and watch it first but let's hop right into it so what I think, honestly, my biggest point of critique is, and I think it's something that we already mentioned in the last episode, we really do wish we could have done more when it came to the intro scene was one thing you were mentioning. So let's talk about our intro scene. I thought overall, it's a very good intro, but the problem is it's very lopsided. You have an immense amount of tension at the end part of it with a really, really good special effect. It just really kind of nailed like okay this is a serious horror movie like you know let's go but the point of getting to it was a little bit longer and the other thing i want to mention with the intro is this was one shot that we ended up reshooting a little bit or having some more uh, footage of it just to kind of spice it up as well too so it's one of those things where we did notice it and we try and trimmed it but overall i think for me at least the biggest point of critique i would say is the intro at least that first minute it's not too long but it's we kind of wish we would spice it up. So what are your thoughts on the intro? I mean, I, I, I'm fine with the intro. Um, I thought it was fine. I do like the slow build. Uh, but, you know, I listened to feedback and the feedback was this is too long. So we did cut it down. We tried to cut it. And I do like the intro because I think it's it's well paced and it's slow burn tension leading up to a very intense climax and that kind of gets you into it and you see this all the time in horror movies where it's a slow burn slow burn slow burn so then when you get that impact it really hits i think the two things that we kind of did that you know kind of negated that a little bit was there was no real tension to the house because you really didn't know anything about the house um you know, it's just a cop and we have, I think the spooky music kind of plays into it, but there's nothing like, you don't really, you know, something bad is going to happen, but you don't really know what. And so there's no like ominous feel to it, where I think if you would have showed the villain, like Kel had suggested, or if you would have shown the girl or just something moving in the shadows, I think would have built up that tension. And I think that it would have just amped it up just a bit. I also think that the way that we shot it with the clown at the end um, in the high point of the climax, for whatever reason, or at least to me, it doesn't hit as well as it should. And I can't figure out why. Um, I've tried a whole bunch of different scenarios with it, but it might be just something that we have to go back and do pre-production on. Because if you take an example of what we did into the forest with the Nelson suicide scene, I was trying to capture that intensity and put it in this movie 
and it didn't necessarily work as well. And I'm not really sure why could be found footage. Um, but you know, that would be something I'd like to go back and try and do pre-production on and see how we could really get that as a really intense um scene so that when you know he does get shot, you get like this, you know, you just get you get more hooked into the movie. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think one caveat I probably should have started off with is, you know, I think this is our best movie we've ever made. I think it's very well paced. I think it's really good. But on the grand scheme, if I have to pick one area um, to, you know, jump into, to me, it was that intro. Um, and mainly because I see it from the sense of almost like you really want to kick it off just a little bit earlier like i said even if it was like a moving shadow in the window or something basic like that i think that's all it's missing to get to that level and the reason that i bring that up is again we're in the avod market or in the tiktok era you know 15 seconds can even be like make or break so to me i think it just misses that one little element to it but other than that i think it's an absolutely fantastic intro i think the clown scare is actually pretty good I would probably put my money if I had to bet on it being found footage was the reason it was so gritty. Uh, and we'll figure that out in our next movie. But I, I do think it was something where if we get you for a minute, we got you because that intro is really good. I just think we're almost leaving it out on the table of, of having that, you know, element. Whereas in the shapeshifter, there's kind of a spooky scare, like 30 seconds into it. Um, so I think, you know, to me, that's kind of the, the main pacing element that it's not even a bad thing. It's just almost like a, a, I wish, you know, you could improve it. And I think real quick, this is a great time to highlight it. You know, this is really where experience comes from, you know, cause we see a scene where like, this is working, but if only we had this or that. So do you want to just briefly talk about how doing something like this again is where all the experience really comes from? No, I mean, this is like how you get better. Um, and, you know, like Kel said, I, I love this movie. I think this is by far the best movie we've done um, on pretty much all phases. But I am going to go in and my job is to get better. And the way I get better is I nitpick and analyze everything. But I think as a filmmaker, you kind of have to identify scenes where there's potential. Like, I think this intro has a lot of potential. We just, for whatever reason, didn't nail it properly. And this is a good thing because now I could go back and we can practice and we do pre-production, we get better. Um, and we can, you know, we'll use it in another movie and nail it. But the other, the opposite side of that spectrum is if this completely bombed and the intro didn't work at all, we know not to do it again, which is probably even more valuable than having something where it's like, all right, we like this, but we didn't nail it to just being, being like, don't ever do this again, put it on the DBS ban list is super valuable. Cause I really think that making a good movie isn't, having a whole bunch of good scenes is just avoiding the pitfalls and the bad scenes. If you get a movie that has just okay scenes all the way through, you're going to make a pretty good movie. Um, so understanding what not to do is almost probably more important than, you know, understanding what to do. And I mean, a lot of it just comes down to my cinematography needs to get better. You know, my sound design needs to get better. You know, me being able to work with the actors needs to get better. And sometimes I think just the little things all add up to make a really good scene. In order to get a really good scene, you just got to kind of have everything kind of click, um, which can be very, very difficult to do. 
Yeah, it definitely is. So with that being said, you know, again, if we do seem any kind of critical, it's simply because we're trying to get to the root of making better movies. Um, but it's nothing but love with these movies. I mean, it's honestly awesome. And speaking of a scene that I think I love just for an overly emotional attachment to the movie itself, the intro scene where they're kind of getting unpacked. I just really love the score that's attached to it. And just for some reason, it almost kind of gives me a little bit of the, the the chills. I think I put a little bit too much of emotional reference to it because to me, it's like it's our 10th movie. You know what I mean? Like we've come this far and like that music sounds really cool when I've seen it. So I feel like I give it a little extra oomph, but I feel like it's a very good cut right from the intro into this. You know, you go from this horror thing and then you go from this group. Clearly, they're on a mission. You don't know what they're quite doing, but I just I think this is a probably one of our best character development scenes in my opinion of just establishing the lore in a cool and action way so how do you kind of feel about the way we did that character development and what really the character development is supposed to do you know i i really liked that scene um it turned out pretty much how i like i had it in a in my head i knew i was going to use that score because it's just an absolute banger um but I wanted to start with like them in the van, like Sicario that's pulled straight from Sicario, um, which is why you need to watch movies so you can reference them. And I wanted to keep it vague, like obviously from the, the blurb in the movie, you're going to know what's going on, but like they're in this random van and then they're kind of walking and we held not showing the house until the very last minute, which I thought was really cool. Cause you're like, what are these guys doing? We see Kel kind of putting together a computer and you're like, well, what's going on with this? And then as the score kind of, you know, picks up, picks up, picks up, and then it kind of ends when you see, oh, the stream is live and they're in front of the house and it's the same house from um, the intro hook. I think it puts everything in the, in the like nice, nice uh, package and the viewer understands what they're, they're about to do, where they're about to go. And, you know, as far as like character development, you understand already they're going to this house. It's the same house from the intro. So something bad's happened they're streamers and there's some semblance to professionalism. Like I wanted to make sure Harper was always on top of things. They seem to have their shit together. Um, so they know what they're doing. And that was pretty much like my goals were to be like, all right, let's build a little bit of mystery. Let's show the viewer exactly what's going to happen and just make sure they're professional and they're good at what they do. Yeah. I, I really think, you know, the pacing of it. And I think this is one of the best examples we've done of show don't tell. Because, you know, you really kind of move through it. Um, you end up having this. And then on top of that, the lesson that we learned, you know, a la Devil in the Room and Morgan Estate is that we're going to pick heavy to the point and we're going to talk exactly about it. So not only did we show, but then we immediately hop into telling. You know, I, I think people get caught up in show, don't tell, and they think they're showing something, but they're not really doing it and they don't tell someone it. And that's a big miss. I think nowadays you have to be very clear with your plot. So I think hopping right into the next scene, which is basically them introducing themselves and then me being Cal basically stating, hey, the live stream's up. So this is one of the benefits of having someone in the van like me. I can immediately be the dialogue motivator. You know, hey guys, the stream is up just to let you know. So I'm constantly pushing this plot forward. And I think, again, this is just a great example of how it leads into the character development. So you want to talk about how important it is. And it's something where you'll notice if you look at our movies, a lot of our trailers come from scenes like this where we basically sum up what's about to happen. And I think in your movie, you should have multiple scenes where if I just watch the single scene of your movie, for the most part, I understand what's going on. 
Yeah, I think um, having narration over the trailer from the actual dialogue in the movie is super powerful. But I mean, this is something we learned from The Girl in Cabin 13. The trailer did really well. The movie did really well. And it's just a piece of the movie that we've took and made it the trailer. So when we were actually filming this, you know, I wrote it so it'd be filmed. I knew this is going to be the trailer spot. Um, I knew this is what we wanted to do. And so the actors, when they were reading this and we were filming, they're like, hey, this would be like a really good spot to do the trailer. And I'm like, you guys got it, man. That's like exactly what we're trying to go for. But it's just, we learned that from Girl in Cabin 13. That trailer did really well. And we're going to continue to do that. Um, even for a shapeshifter, we have a long dialogue scene where one character is narrating over a fire. That's our trailer sequence. And I think you should always try and have something like that because we could run his narration and cut to like the different aspects of what he's talking about. But even if it's not very good, it doesn't turn out well. It just gives you something that if it does work, um, you know it's going to work well. It explains in a visual element um, exactly what your movie is about. And the trailer, guys, trailer is so important. And like, if you have a bad trailer, you're just, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. So um, it's an easy hack. It's something where you're not going to spend a lot of time building your trailer because you already have this stuff done. Um, and I would just, I would highly recommend trying to write certain scenes for your trailer. It, it really is something where it's, it it's twofold. You know, one, it gives you the trailer, but then two, if you have a scene that can literally be a trailer in itself, you're doing a great job explaining your plot. Like there should be at least that coming up three times. And if you look at like the Morgan estate, or if you look at like the devil in the room, don't really have that element as much as we did, especially in movies like now. So I think it's super important to look at having something like that. Um, you know, I think real quickly, I was actually, I think one of my most like the biggest concerns that I had, I was like, I don't know if the live stream stuff's going to come out that good. You know, I was kind of like, yeah, how's that going to look? How's that going to feel or whatnot? I thought it came out really good. I love that element to it. I love that angle. So really quickly, do you want to just kind of touch on the live stream element? Because at this point in time, the live stream also gives you a very important character that if you look closely is almost in every single movie. And that's the person who explains what's going on or fills you in. So, you know, there's always a Morpheus character or someone who's like, hey, guess what's going on, guys? are explaining it. And having the live stream, which is essentially our audience, can be you know, hey guys, what's up? This is what we do. And instead of having a character that's supposed to know this, it gives you that ability to just explain the plot. So do you want to talk about overall what you thought about the live stream, but then also how you can utilize the live stream to explain to the audience what you're doing at any point in time? Yeah, I mean, I think that the live stream, it worked really well in Suicide House. It worked really well in Into the Forest. So I was very confident with it. This one, we wanted to show more of the stream um, on the screens, which I was not very confident about at all. Um, but the fact that we had Kel away from the main shooting days just allowed me to work in um, Adobe After Effects to try and get some of those screen grabs up there. So, I mean, worst case scenario, I would have outsourced it to someone. But, you know, the good thing with a lot of these programs now is that people have put a lot of work into templates and you can download these templates and they're pretty much ready to go. That being said, it still took me like 20 hours to get all that stuff together. Um, but I mean, the live stream is, is just engaging. You're talking, you're talking straight to the camera. You're breaking down the fourth wall, so it's it's definitely a, like a little trick. Um, 
I do think it kind of does affect the tone a little bit. Um, I think it does take away from the serious of the movie. So if you're trying to really get a very dark and gritty tone on some of these movies, I think the live stream does detract from that a little bit. So it's just something to keep in mind. Um, if you're really trying to go for a darker tone, um, I think the thing with the live stream is there's a little bit of cheese element. It's a little bit lighthearted. And I think that kind of pulls detracts away from like the overall grittiness of a movie or the overall dark tone um, that you're trying to achieve. I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to actually be the first thing that was kind of a contention point to some degree, um, which was our initial trailer for the other side. So in the movie, the other side, they have a uh, little promo trailer. And from the beginning, I always remember this being like a big one where we're like, okay, we're going to do this. And then my element and our element at first was like, let's kind of cheese this up. You know, we had Dylan hitting the vape. You know, we have Tom, uh, we have a, uh, Kai with the sunglasses on and everything there. And we were kind of being a little bit more lighthearted. And I think this is just a good dynamic to bring up because again, everything is, is point of view. And I think there is elements where people either want it to be kind of lighthearted and fun, you know, like your classic horror element slasher that kind of doesn't take itself too seriously. And then your drama, more, you know, darker, realistic element. And I think it's, this is an interesting one to me because it almost feels like, you know, our audience says one thing and our, our distribution are just kind of the people who are in the distribution company are saying different things. Do you want to just explain how I think one of the harder things as a filmmaker is you get pulled in different directions. So this was one thing we kind of tried to feel out. We were using data. I mean, from the beginning, I was always kind of like, you know, I like it, but I think it's kind of cheesy. And we kind of found a good middle ground with everything. But do you want to talk about how you're going to get pulled in different direction and why this is, you know, why having multiple data points is the best thing you can do, especially for something creative? Yeah, I mean, it's like you don't want to ruin, you don't want to take the viewer out of the movie. And I don't think that this, that scene would have taken the viewer out of the movie. I've seen it done in other, um, you know, highly sellable horror movies where they've done sort of like a cheesy kind of intro. And I don't think it really matters because it's number one, it's their intro. It's not the movie's intro. You're literally watching it through a camera on another screen through another camera. So it's not like super, um, you know, it's, it's not like super campy. And I think you can, you can kind of get away from it. I did have to take out some, some pieces of it when people were like, yeah, all right, this is like too much where we had Dylan smoking a vape through a fog machine. Um, so it just looked ridiculous, but I kind of knew that was going to be an issue in there. We did get a lot of serious stuff in there. So I think it worked out fine. I think it adds to production value, but I mean, darker gritty horror movies are usually the best-selling movies people like horror movies for a reason they want to be scared the more realistic the more gritty the the horror movie the better they do there is a place for campy movies yes um if you're a fan of 80s movies those don't seem to do as well anymore people really 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 want to have super hard realistic gritty movies if you look at the top 10 you know, best-selling movies over the last, you know, 10 years. You have, like, Sinister. You have a lot of the James Wan stuff. Um, all those movies, even a lot of found footage stuff is super gritty. Um, Dark and the Wicked's, like, another one. Autopsy of Jane Doe's another one. They get in there, and they keep in a very realistic, gritty um, 
atmosphere and it's not for everybody but it seems to be that if you can get through without like turning the movie off and running away um usually you'll watch it just because you'll be entertained i think that's the reason found footage is so popular it adds another degree of realism to it um so it's it's something it's something we're definitely going to explore in the next couple of movies um just to try a different style out because i don't think we've had a very serious dark gritty movie yet i don't think we've we've made one yet um girl and count 13 is campy and i think the rest of the movies were campy but not an intentional campy they just turned out campy so it's something i'm really excited to play with um because it gives me just another way to just try and find out my style and how i want to make movies yeah and i, I think one thing to notice about campy uh is something is like people like it after they like your movie so like you know i think our fans and our audience after they know who we are and after they kind of know everything about us they'll give you almost kind of more respect with it. Like if you look at like cult classics where people are like, oh, it's so campy, I love it. Typically it takes a while. Whereas like, if you're looking for first impact, I feel like, you know, not knowing anything, not knowing anything about us or, you know, what we do or how active we are with our community, that darker tone is going to go much farther. So I think that's one thing you can kind of notice is like, people will be more forgiving and more forgiving especially means like oh i like the campy element to it so that was one thing that i noticed in getting kind of the feedback um with that being said though you know i really want to kind of highlight it, our pacing on this one was really well done basically after the end of this intro scene with them we proceed immediately to explain that it's a haunted lock-in what's going on with the house it was the murder house we explain what happened to lester i go we go inside we get a little bit pov of it we get another explanation of uh what's happening all within like three minutes there's a montage in between <clears throat> so it's quick there and then we get to our next scare which is uh mo walking by in the monitor scene so you're looking at really good pacing in this one because if it's not then a scare it's immediately building the the lore plot so do you want to talk about how we quickly moved and then immediately peppered not only the most scare but then also the light turn on and off scare and what your opinions are of those were yeah i mean i think if we if i go back i'd probably move the ouija board up sooner um because i think you can kind of instead of them walking and talking which they did I think you can actually do that with the Ouija board scene. So I almost have them get into the house and then set up the Ouija board and then they can narrate what happened here and try and communicate with Lester. Now the board catching on fire at that time would probably be too aggressive. So if you wanted to keep that, which I think you should, we'd have to break it up a little bit, but I think you can kind of build the lore in a really cool scene. And I thought the Ouija board scene was a really, really good scene. It seemed, it's super engaging when they're asking questions. They're, you could show that they're communicating with the streamers. I think that you can move that one up a little bit or split it in two um, and save like the more aggressive half towards the end. Um, just by, you can put like, if I would do it again, like go in the secret room and have like someone's like name written all over it. And they're like, who is this person and the Ouija board? And then you can still catch on fire. But instead of them, like, I didn't really like when they were walking back and forth. Yes, it was engaging. Yes, they were lore dumping. But if I were to go back and seeing how well we did the Ouija board scene, I would just kind of combine them, if that makes sense. Um, we'd have to move some of the other scares around. 
but I think coming off a very strong intro and then getting a really, really cool scene with the Ouija board sequence, I think would really amp up the pace and allow us to, you know, dump the dialogue, dump the lore in a more engaging way. Yeah, I mean, I think it would allow for just more showing of it because those are kind of the two narration scenes that we really have and again it cuts back to me in the van which helps out a ton in the sense of breaking those scenes up a little bit and then cutting to dylan filming so even in these lore dumps we're finding ways to make it motion and we're finding ways to add to it um but yeah i feel like it moves really quick for every like lore dump we have we almost have like two scares backing it because as soon as you go from the light scene you go right back to another um dialogue about the lore and then you start understanding that okay you know they're doing paranormal activity stuff where they bust out the emf reader and they start going through it and this was something for me and this was something that i love from the core concept so much I still think it's not as fleshed out as it could be. And like, I think Murder House 3.0, I really love it. But I absolutely love the idea of them faking stuff because I feel like it's such a cool element to add to it. It's almost kind of prodding and joking. And, you know, a lot of horror people, are like they kind of like people to get their just comeuppance and, you know, faking things and things like that is an element. Plus it builds tension. So basically what ends up happening is we have them using the EMF reader shows are paranormal. You get your first real jump scare, which is uh, very nice. I, I think we executed it perfectly besides the fact that we couldn't really find replacements as easily as we thought. Um, I think it was a really solid way that we did it. We had a loud noise, which is great. We showed that they were faking it with a fishing line. It was a jump scare, but it was also a jump scare that we didn't sacrifice, you know, any building of the tension that we need to get out of here. So what were kind of your thoughts through EMF and the fishing wire? Yeah, no, I mean, we took it from the suicide house. This is something we did take from the suicide house as far as like the faking scare. Um, and I think we just did a better job having fall out of frame, especially on a like the top of the frame where people's eyes aren't really expecting it, always creates a jump scare. Having glass shatter as an audio scare is always really, really scary. It's just a very like jarring sound. Um, I still think we could do it better. I think it would need more of a budget. If I could drop a chandelier, I think you would really just something larger than that light would have been really, really good. Um, but I think it works. I want to see, I do think that, um, or I'm interested to see what people's reactions are as far as them faking things i think we did a much better job in this movie we kind of brush it under the rug a little bit like they're trying to get views we don't really linger on it we're in the suicide house we did linger on a little bit and one of the things was people did not like the fact that they were faking things they did not like that at all um but i think that once again i took a risk i was like well maybe i think we just didn't develop the characters right and their motivations right um and I think we did it in this one. And the, the way we fixed that was Harper was upset that he wanted to fake more things. Like this was kind of like Harper's like, all right, like you get year one and then you kind of let me do my thing with the paranormal stuff. And I think it makes her like a little bit more genuine. And then Kai kind of takes the blame as opposed to the whole group. You know, he's up to it and kind of develops Tim as like this kind of like shuckster kind of guy who just wants to get the views. And I think that that, you know, kind of helps out with just the overall dynamic of the story. But this is this is something that I do want to see because I do like Kel. I enjoy it. I think it kind of gives it like a little bit of um 
just a different like vibe to it. Um, but I want to see if people get pissed off about it. Yeah, I, I think it it depends how you execute the characters, like literally, in the sense that you know, people like to see someone get their comeuppance. And again, spoiler, you know, Kai ends up getting possessed and you really almost want to have it where it's like, well, that's what you get for tempting the beast. You know, that's what you get for, for doing these things. Um, but I think also, you know, just us having multiple characters, you could see where Kai was coming from when he was talking with me and so on. So I'm curious to see that element too, because I just think it's something that if people do like it, there's a lot of social media elements that you can attach these things to earlier drafts of girl in cabin 13 had this element a little bit higher and i think it allows you to give a dynamic because you know you want to have characters that are likable but you also want characters you know that are hateable you know in the sense that people love a good villain but people love that dynamic and i think we're learning how to explore it but i do love that element with it and then that leads again right into you know okay you understand what they're doing they're doing some things that go immediately into the next challenge. We understand what's going on. I feel like we've really done a crisp job of getting you to this point. Then they bust out the um, tape recorder and the tape recorder is great because they immediately set it up with, listen, we'll let you do the tape recorder, but we're going to fake it. You know what I mean? If we don't get anything, we're going to fake it. So you have that tension point. You can see Harper trying to, to get it going and then things get a little bit weird and I will say this scene actually came out a lot better than I expected. It was something we were able to patch a lot because of my reaction in the van, which was specifically something that because we saw the edit, I remember being like, hey, we need to get me like reacting because it wasn't the smoothest. It just didn't make sense when they heard the noise to when they popped out. So do you want to talk about the audio scare? Kind of how I think we took it from a decent scare to one of the better scares. Like I think that was one that, We've really patched it in post, just, you know, hearing it come through, popping there based on the footage that we had. And then also I have to give you props. I was expecting the hole in the wall to be super, super tough and rough, but we actually did a really good job with that. So I'll, I'll concede that one to you as well. I mean, the, the EMF stuff has been done in a lot of horror movies. So I felt confident with it. The problem is that location. If you look at where they actually end up, it is like this small, super small hallway with three doors and it's very plain. I couldn't use the lenses that I wanted. I remember being like, all right, is this where we're really going to set up? And there was no other place in the house to do this. Like this was, we used all the other rooms. This is where it needed to go down. And I'm just like, Oh my God. Like I was so nervous because I just couldn't get the coverage and the cuts that I needed to, you know, essentially make this not look horrible because they literally do that audio scare. They sit there and yell at each other for like 30 seconds and they find the secret wall. Um, And as far as like the secret wall, I felt pretty good um, with that. Um, I didn't, I think once he got in the room, which I thought would be the easy part, actually turned out to be the much harder part. Um, But I mean, I thought the secret wall and like we might still have a lot of people bitch about it as far as like just the plot holes and it really doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but I wanted to test it out because I do think in the Murder House 3.0, when we have a much nicer location, like we're, we're shooting somewhere up north that has a basement, attic, and just a regular house, putting in a fake room like that will add a lot of tension. And it's just cool. People like secret rooms. So I wanted to test it out on this one and see what, how people would react. And it seems like it's overwhelmingly positive. Um, like I said, I thought the easiest part would be getting Kai in the room and that actually turned out to be the hardest. 
Yeah, I mean, again, I think this is a great time to remind everyone that, you know, these are base templates for the concepts, because when you have a budget, creating an actual fake room, and then going in there, doing the challenge and everything there kind of plays itself. But I think it's just, again, really, really good execution. You use the audio, which is what we were very heavy on when it comes to the noises. And like, anytime you're using an audio scare as a horror one, it gives you a lot of post flexibility, because we were tweaking it, you know, what does it sound like? but I think we did a really good job of getting people through it. We got right to the challenge. And I mean, like, this is basically, you're looking at, you know, 30 minutes into the movie right now. So 30 minutes into the movie, we've already done it and things have gone from, you know, fake scare to potentially real scare, you know, there's something here. And then what I think was probably the biggest just concern, but focus point was really the, the lock-in challenge. Um, and the lock-in challenge, it was always something where I remember even the challenges at first, we were like, let's not do challenges. Like, no, I want a clear plot line structure. So like we, we fought over that one just briefly in the sense of what's the best way to progress these. But I think with the lock-in challenge, seeing it again, I think when we first looked at it, it was kind of rough and we always knew it was iffy. I'm really happy where it's at right now, but I think we we're immediately like, well, I should have probably been like an actual mannequin and started moving for real. And like you immediately identify like right off the bat of like, oh man, we should have just done this, this, and this. But I would say this was probably the one that we had to give the most TLC when it came to just getting into the final product, which again, I think because of the noises we added, because of the final post touches, it works. But I think it's one of those ones where, you know, anytime you can, you know, we made it a lot harder for ourselves than I think it needed to be. Well, this was really the only scare where I didn't do a lot of pre-production stuff because I just felt like it'd be easy. Like it's just a locked in person in the room, quick cuts of mannequins, reactions, and then like adding some audio noise. So I really wasn't concerned about it. And when I actually was shooting with Tyler in the room, I mean, I have a ton of coverage. I took different angles. I took different shots. I used different lenses. I have just a ton of coverage. But the problem was when I started to edit it, I was like, oh my God, this is like not good. Like it just wasn't, the tension wasn't there. The scares weren't there. And I had put this scene at the 30 minute mark, because our data says that if you get someone to watch 30 minutes of your movie and continue on, they're going to finish that movie. So it's a crucial scene in the middle of the movie, but I was so confident with it, I put it there. So when I was actually editing the movie and I was like, why is this not cutting together? Like, what the heck? Like, I started to get very concerned because I was like, this is going to get people to turn off. Um, but, you know, it goes back to like, you know, our chiseling mar marble analogy where we just, I just kind of worked at it, you know, and then I moved it on and I worked on it and then I moved on and I worked on it and then I moved on and I got, you know, a lot of feedback from the super fans and like just add more noises in there, add clown laughing, like have the noises of the mannequin moving. Um, and that's what I added in. And, you know, I'm, I still, I think it turned out all right. I think we salvaged it. I did turn out, I still think we can make it much scarier by doing things like Kel said. I think you have to get more reaction shots of Tyler would be like how I do like facial reactions um, in there. And I think you just needed a scarier room as well, like more shadows and more creepy corners and stuff like that room is kind of tight. 
And I think you could really make it a really cool scene. But I think for what we were trying to do, I think it turned out well. Um, but I mean, it's it's something that worked well enough that we can invest in post-production or in pre-production and we can invest in set decoration for the next one to really like make it an over-the-top, really scary um, scene. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you really, again, it goes back to the secret room. If the secret room is a basement, that's, you know, really spooky right then in itself. I will say uh, Carl on the mannequin really saved the day because that thing is terrifying looking. And then also the music. And again, having cuts back to me in the car, in the van, really saved it. Because if you held, the longer you held on that scene, the worse it was. Like when you just watch that scene with no breaks and no audio, that thing was just pretty rough shape. And to be able to see where it's at now, I think we did a fantastic job of it. But I do agree with exactly what you said, where, you know, this is just the baseline of what we can do with it. So now really from this point, we were in takeoff mode. And this is something you always talk about in a movie. You kind of hit the takeoff mode. We're right on, we're right about the takeoff, I would say. And it's essentially... Where is that moment in the movie where you know it's going to be nothing but action for the rest of it or as much action as possible with little downbeats? And this is typically where in the scene where, you know, people would be like, you guys need to leave or go. And the way that we transition into this, you know, things get a little bit spooky. Kai brushes it off because there's not much proof. And then we go ahead and we do the Ouija scene, which I think the Ouija scene came out really, really well. I mean, I, I think it was really good. We used some pyrotechnics. Um, and I mean, it just it, you know, it, it looks visually it's appealing um i was kind of nervous at first because i think with the quicker cuts and whatnot it was kind of hard to get the motion of the ouija board so it wasn't quite like just you know bland and whatnot but i think we did a really good job with the ouija scene and then it burst on fire so do you want to just kind of talk about the ouija scene and how that was you know essentially us taking off and saying okay i just saw a ouija board catch on fire yeah i mean there's a scene right before like they have to make the decision to you know stay or go um i thought the ouija board turned out much better than i had the scene in my head which is you know usually rare for us but i think it's just engaging it's an engaging scene you you're like there's a mystery element to it you want to see what you know the ouija board is saying the fact that it starts moving are they faking it again then it starts to pick up in intensity and that the you know the scratching noise of the ouija board kind of brings up the tension and then, you know, just having it light on fire is like the cherry on top. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's just a great scene. And I thought the acting was really well done in there. And it was a perfect, um, you know, segue to really go to the, you know, get Dylan to stay and make sure they stayed. So I think, um, you know, I, the Ouija board's so good. I think I'd actually just move it up in the movie a little bit. But um you know, it, it is one of the rare times where something's turned out much better than I had in my head, which is always a good thing. Um, that being said, it was a huge pain to shoot that. Um, There's just a lot of angles, a lot of cuts, a lot of footage. Um, I remember that on taking, I think, almost eight or nine hours to shoot that whole scene. It was an absolute nightmare. And then I remember finishing, I'm just like, oh, my goodness, like that was just way harder than i thought it would be um for what really on paper seems like a pretty easy scene it was just so many technical shots in that one and just different reactions yeah it definitely was a brutal one to film i remember since we busted out the ouija board we started hearing noises 
inside the house which is always nice to know as you're filming a horror movie um but yeah i think it came together really really well and i think this leads right into the scene which to me i think was looking at what we were trying to accomplish or at least in my opinion you know one of the things i wanted to really look at accomplishing with the script and the screenplay was how do you make it convincing for them to stay i just saw a ouija board catch on fire there is four people and we discussed this a little bit in the last one and one of the big issues with girl in cabin 13 is you only have two characters one character has to be like let's stay and the other character has to be like let's go because of the group element and more importantly because of the amazing performances during this scene you have the wide range of emotions which is you know some people are going to be like i need to get out of here dylan some people are going to be like, I want to know what's going to happen here, Harper. Some people are going to be like, I see how I can benefit from this, um, myself and Tyler. So it's almost kind of because you have these different elements, it's not so polarizing as yes, no. It's almost like, well, calm down, guys. Let's see what's happening here. And I think it was a really, really good way because a lot of the times, I think one of the biggest feedbacks you get with any horror movie is like, I just leave. And it's so easy for someone to say that when you're watching a horror movie. But in real life, you know, I look at our, some of that stuff. If you don't believe it's going to happen, you're not going to be that quick to say it. So I think to me, this scene was one of the best downbeats we executed on how do you convince and make it actually seem legitimate for people to stay after seeing a Ouija board catch on fire. Yeah, I think, you know, just nailing the character motivations. Um, so making sure that, you know, like you said, every single character had a proper motivation. And then it was just really, you know, Kai, Tyler, and yourself just kind of railroad, railroaded Dylan. Like he, they just wouldn't let him leave. But also comes back to just the genius of having the house locked. Like they, even if they wanted to leave, they can't, which is proved later in the movie. Um, they just can't leave. And honestly, I think if I would do this movie again, I think your character, the guy in the van, would be more of a director role and he would be even more villainous. Like they actually all want to leave. And he's like, no, you can't leave. Like you have to stay. Because I think there was like little inklings when you're talking to Kai. I was like, this could be a really cool villain story. And I think that if you did that and made the guy in the van like more insidious and really is he's like seeing the views coming. He's like, you're not leaving. Like, I don't care if like what you guys are seeing, you're not leaving. And then that kind of amps up the climax where they have to kind of work together. Um, it would be some way, I don't know if it would work, but it'd be something that I'd like to try and write. Cause I think it would be just a cooler dynamic. Um, and I think it would amp up the tension a lot more because there is like in the next couple of scenes, like a little bit of a downbeat until it really picks up to the climax. I think you could really head into the third act with a lot of like ongoing tension where they all want to leave, but there's one guy's in charge. Isn't going to let him do it. No, I'm about it. I like that motivation for me, but yeah, I think it's something where it, it makes sense to me and it sets it up. Um, Cause again, you know, Harper's coming at it where like, she's trying to convince Dylan, but she's doing it because she wants to find it out. And I think you can identify with like their, their motivations a lot more. Um, but I think that scene, <clears throat> it's one of my favorite scenes. I think I guess Sarah did a phenomenal job with this one. Um, like just her interactions. And also I think it shows you the beauty of the pacing of being able to cut back and forth because you have me talking with Kai and Sarah talking with Dylan. 
it allows it to move really, really quickly. So you get this, they make the deal, and then it sets the stakes. You know, Kai's like, let's do this. I'm like, let's do this. Dylan's like, I'm going to go sit in the corner. And that sets it up even better, in my opinion, because one of my first favorite scenes that we had here was the seance scene with Dylan and the radio, because having an escalation in the seance with having an escalation of what Dylan's seen, I thought was really, really great. So do you want to talk about those two scares? I think I remember the entire time I was like, dude, this seance sounds wild that you're trying to pull it off. But I knew the radio was going to hit. So, I mean, I'm, I'm very pleased with how they both turned out. But I just remember with the seance and the planning of it, I just didn't think there was anything too spicy with it. However, having it almost like narration for Dylan and what he's seen, I think makes it really, really work. Yeah, no, I think the radio honestly saves that. And I can't, I have to go back and look at where the radio came in because I think it was like not added until very late in the process. Um, but I know that we had the radio playing in the beginning. I think it was just like, all right, well, this, you know, can tie back together. Um, but it was never intentionally supposed to be cut like that. But once again, if I were to just hand this off to any kind of editor, they may have just stacked those scenes and not cut them together. But the fact that, you know, that we're good at editing, we understand how to do this, this is an option. We we stacked them together and cut them together. And I think it, it fixes that because the seance is sort of like a slow burn hit to, you know, make the seizure scene and actual possession scene just be more impactful. Um, but I think the seance scene, once again, just requires better set dressing and just a cooler scene. Um, and I think the, you know, like when they're making the concoction, the pickup stuff that we did is well done, but like, I don't know, like the reading the Latin, I probably wouldn't do that again. I thought that was kind of boring. Um, they're sitting around for a while, which is kind of boring. I mean, I, I would have had them find maybe in the secret room, like some of uh, Lester's like diary writings or crazed writings. And they were like reciting them in the, the, um, the circle as opposed to the Latin, I think would have been more engaging and creative. Um, but I mean, I think the radio really did save that one. Um, and it loudest, and once again, so much easier to build tension with two cut points because you could really you know, speed it up or slow it down. You have so much freedom of just really getting a really good pace. And I think you do see that. I think it really builds slowly and then it gets faster, faster, faster until Dylan has a scare and then Kai has a scare. And then, you know, I think that scene works really well. But I mean, I think a lot of these, a lot of the scenes in this movie are like, they're good scenes. There's potential there. We just don't necessarily have the budget, um, the set dressing, and just the special effects to really take them off. But the fact that we know that they work on this limited budget, when we do have a budget or we do want to like add a little bit more spice to it, you know, getting someone to come in there or getting a better location is very easy to do if you know how to do the fundamentals of the actual scene. Yeah, I, I think it really was something where both scenes on their own, you know, worked. But I think we learned something with that duality of having, you know, in one scene, nothing's happening is what it so seems. But really, it's causing issues for some other character. I think that helps build it. And then as soon as that hits, you have the seizure scene, which again is a, a showing of if you have multiple cuts, 
how frantic and how intense you can kind of make the scenes. We have it, you know, where it's almost kind of the cop out of, you know, me calling the police in the sense of, hey, I need to need to report something here because obviously something's wrong. Kai snaps out of it. And then I think, you know, this is, again, another nod to just in any horror scene, you almost kind of have to have something like the key breaking where for some reason they're trying to get out or something's trying to happen or, you know, they've gone too far. And it's almost like the moment of no return. And I think this comes back to kind of like a, a budget thing, but like, I think it was a really good way of, you know, I remember I fought hard for the lock-in element to it and just different things like that. Um, but having the key break was a really quick, easy way to go ahead and fix it. And it's a reasonable thing. So yeah, it's kind of like a little cheesy to some degree where it's like, oh my God, they tripped or oh my God, they dropped the keys. But any horror movie has to do that. You know, it's easy to watch and spectate, but I think the tension that you got from the seizure scene and then the, okay, we're almost down to then the key breaks and Kai is gone is kind of being the last seizure scene plus how well the mirror scene came out with Kai. Do you want to kind of talk about Kai's escalation into possession and how while it was a downbeat because the fact that Kai clearly wasn't right, it allowed us to build tension in a very slow way. Yeah. I think really the pacing of this movie works really well because the scenes really just flow and bleed over each other which i think is really really cool we don't use establishing shots in this movie other than the streamer chats but i'm really happy with how everything kind of flowed together scenes led you know from one to the next everything that they're doing had a purpose and it kind of just all molded together and we have spent a lot of time really working and make sure the transition scenes were really really well done because I think it's a big problem with indie films. I think it's a big problem with our other movies. It's like you get very blocky if you're not making these things flow properly. And one of the ways that we create these scripts is by stacking these sequences on top of each other, these scary sequences. But if they're not flowing naturally, like they're not leading to the next couple of scenes, then you get like this very blocky feel to your movie. Um, and I really worked on like, all these things like Kai gets up and they have to get Kai out. So the, the locks there, the key breaks. And then look like we can do an establishing shot there or, or like slow it down or something. But instead she turns over and Kai's gone. So that leads them into the next scene. And then we cut that with Kai, you know, standing in the mirror. Um, and then, you know, obviously we, we go into another scary sequence in there, but everything flows together. And I think how you get into a scene, how you get out of a scene is so crucial if you want to keep really good pacing and it'd be something that I, I recommend both screenwriters and editors to really focus on, because I think a, the difference from, you know, getting a movie that feels very blocky, which is sort of like an amateur movie to something that's almost like an Edgar Wright style of like very nice smooth editing um, is just how you get in and out of these scenes. Yeah, I really do think that that's something very noticeable with it. And I think it comes back to having the multiple characters as well, too, because, you know, having cut back to Kel versus an establishing shot, because realistically, if you're like your own cat in 13, who do you cut to, you know, so I, I, I think we set ourselves up for that and we were executing very well on that. And I mean, it flies from here, you know, you can't, well, you basically once they find Kai and he sits down, that's when you kind of get the the real action going and i think we knew from the very beginning what our major special effects scenes were and i think with the head smash 
and then the head chop off. I think we executed really well on them, but I also do think it does show our weakest point. And I kind of want to briefly highlight how, just because of the sake of micro budget and how expensive special effects is and how much that really requires, we did a fantastic job with our special effects, but this is something where like realistically, you know, we have more time, we have more budgets. We would probably spend a whole day on the different angles and whatnot, because when you reset for special effects, it's not just, Hey, let me go ahead and do this. It's the person has to be completely clean off of blood. Like a reset on a special effects shot is so monumentally huge. I mean, we already put so much towards that budget already, but do you kind of want to briefly talk about how special effects you really are trying to just get it. You don't have the luxury of getting the best one just at this level, but that's something we can scale into. That being said, I think the head smash and I think the head chop were absolutely amazing for what we've done, but I think it still shows us where we can have a lot of opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I think like looking at this movie, I think we did a lot of things well that could be done much, much better. Like, I don't think any of these scenes really kind of detracted from the movie, but I'm like, man, the head smash that I was like trying to go for just didn't come out like I wanted it to. And I don't know if that was just like special effects or how I shot it. Um, you know, I think I would have done more pre-production knowing how to do it now. Um, just to try and really isolate it. And the same thing with the head chop, the head chop is kind of weird because I could never, and I still don't feel comfortable with the sound effects. There's just, I can't find, like I searched and searched and searched to try and find some kind of sound of, um, a hacksaw going through flesh like i have the bone sound that's very easy to find but like going through flesh because i'm pretty sure it doesn't make a sound um but you have to do it for like the movie magic element and i just couldn't find it um so like there's an example of having you know someone a professional folly studio that could come in and like get the actual sound that you know you're looking for but i mean practical effects are so expensive um like to probably if you were to ask me how much would it cost me to do the hammer and the head chop to how i really really wanted to make it as gory and gritty as possible i'd probably say 10 to 15k for each one so you're looking at almost 30k to get a team to come out here to get proper makeup to get everything done for two scenes and it's just not practical in the indie um indie world um, which is why you see a lot of people try and go to CGI, but I absolutely hate CGI. I love practical effects. Um, and hopefully we can work our way up there. Um, but it's just those silicon molds are so expensive and you only get a few of them. And it's just like, you got to get it. And it's just, it's very tricky to do this kind of stuff. But I was very happy with how they turned out. I thought they were good enough to, you know, keep people in the movies um, or keep watching the movie but I do think like now that we know that they work I'd be willing to add a little bit more budget next time um, to try and get a better cut is it going to be the best cut probably not but I'm hoping just make progress versus what we had before yeah I mean this is something that I harp on a lot in the sense where I think special effects is something again not that we have bad special effects or not that we have people there it just costs so much money and for our effective scale it's really tough to dedicate that much stuff when it's like, why risk it for at this point? But, you know, as you're mentioning, we're scaling up and we're getting more confident with it. Um, Cause it is something where I think the hardest part with it is we go toe to toe with million dollar movies. I mean, that's who we're up against on Tubi. We're, we're up against the, the cream of the crop. There's no minor league here. You have to go up against literally the best of the best and the best of the best can just blow someone up for hundred K because they're a Hollywood set. 
we can't do that. So we have to basically do what we can to get to that level. And I think it's just one of those things with the nature of how the industry is. It, it's where you can show your colors a lot as an indie filmmaker. That being said, I think we did an absolutely fantastic job of it. That whole scene moves really quickly from Hammer all the way to um, you have a quick little downbeat of Sarah um, tr trying to go hide and seek. I think the hide and seek element is one thing I want to touch on. Two things, the hide and seek and something that Brendan was really, really ecstatic about ever since the writing process which was the nail on the board which people love so congratulations there's your second payoff of it with the nail foreshadowing um but do you want to talk about how i think i saw what we were trying to do i think two things happened one the house wasn't ideal for it i think two we kind of ran out of time um you know because we kind of were like let's just film this and throw it together almost kind of what we did with the hide and seek room not that we ran out of time but i feel like it was more of well if i get a bunch of clips i can throw something together and that's usually not the case usually to have a more solid or concrete idea because i feel like in the editing room we had footage but we had to really be creative we had to use a lot of me in the van to kind of scrap through it and i think it just comes from in our heads, we're like, yeah, we'll just have them hide and seek. But if you don't really have that plan out, so you want to talk about the hide and seek and then the nail on the board, which again, I think it's saved by the nail on the board and also Mo being Mo. The the location just was not good. Like that was the only reason we couldn't get more footage there is because the house was just so small and we had filmed in all those rooms before. And if you're trying to do like long tracking shots and make it like look like she's going somewhere, um, it's just it wasn't gonna happen. I remember we put the 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 GoPro. So like originally in the script, it was supposed to her go from that closet was supposed to be on the opposite side of the house. So she have to go all the way across the house to just get the night vision dog class or the night vision camera. Then she get the night vision camera, and she would have to try and go. I think we were gonna have her try and go to the garage or like try and get out some kind of board somewhere else. Um, so she starts walking all the way across and we just didn't have enough space to do these tracking shots because Mo was supposed to be like seeing her and she's supposed to hide and he's supposed to go across the doorway, which we already do, which hit pretty well, but it was supposed to be just a little bit longer and more tension filled. And we just didn't have like the house just wasn't big enough to do that. It just comes back to we're limited by our location. So, you know, I was like flipping images left and right. We relied on Kel, we relied on Mo. And it just comes back to if you just get coverage, like just get as much coverage as you possibly can because there's things you can do to fix it. Um, but like if I was doing it again, I'd have a location. Like this movie really just needed a better location. I think it'd be really, really good. I think it needed a basement, a basement, an attic, and just a general living space. Because then you could have her go in the basement, go up to the attic, go down steps, up steps, and you could add like probably two or three minutes to the movie with Mo like getting really close to killing her. Um, but I mean, that comes, it like gave me an idea for another movie. I think you can make a whole movie where you have someone just narrating to another person with a night vision camera that can't see it. I think you could probably do that as like a found footage movie. Um, but I mean, I think it's, it was just location. That was like the only problem. And I was very upset. I was worried that the climax wasn't going to be as long as it really would be. Um, Cause I really had the climax starting from the hammer and going to, you know, her, you getting your head chopped or her, her trying to escape. And really the climax honestly started really right when they found Kai. So the hammer kind of molded into it. 
so it did pace out well but i mean yeah in the script there's probably about three or four more minutes on that hide and seek scene and honestly we might have just cut it you know we don't even know if it would have been any good if it was longer I think that's a good point to show, you know, we always shoot for an hour 30 and usually one or two things come up. And I think this is just the nature of filmmaking. So, you know, that was one where I think we trimmed it down, but it still worked really well. People loved the nail. I think that special effect came out really, really good. Um, so that was, again, you have three solid special effects right in a row. You have it going. I was a big fan of the help me, help me with the chain and getting pulled. Like, I, I just think that that was just a very beautiful little touching end to it and then here's kind of the last thing that you know we wanted to bring up and was the ending and this is the beautiful way of filmmaking this is always how it happened so we finished filmmaking we always knew we wanted to leave it open this was something where we saw really good from girl in cabin 13 people love an open story there so we filmed it with the streamer and literally as we were packing up or cleaning up i came to you and i said hey you know what probably would have been pretty cool is if like mo lunged out after walter and the second I kind of breathed that into the air, we thought about it. We were like, well, shit. And then that was something we always thought we would do. It was something that we looked at asking our super fans if we should do. We got overwhelming support. We added that little clip into it. And I think it just, it people love it. And I think that's what the experience factor is. You know, going through this process, seeing that and being solidified with the super fans and now right now, I've had so many people in the community say, oh my God, that got me at the end. That was so good. So you want to kind of talk about how we knew we were going to keep it open. It was something that you did in Girl in Cabin 13 that I was frankly against to a little bit, but people love it. People love the idea of a sequel. And then how we kind of, you know, clarified if people would like this and then executed on it. Yeah, I mean, it's the power of the super fans to be like, hey, like my gut says that we need to do this. Um, and it's funny because I did ask like two or three people, um, I asked some writers, I asked some friends, you know, what they thought if I put another clown in there and everyone said, no, don't do that because it doesn't make any sense. And I was like, well, it doesn't make any sense. It's like, well, Mo needs to, his time to like come through and like, I feel like he gets more power as you like mess with him in his house and like, he can't just come out and kill someone. And I'm like, all right, you guys are just like training your own lore, which is great. Like, that's what I want movies to do. But when we pulled the super fans who are like the people who are really about these movies, um, they're like, yes, it was like literally 100% of them said yes. And I felt like, um, you know, I wanted to do it. I just didn't want to do more pickups. And I didn't know, you don't know how well that stuff's going to cut together because we were in a completely different location. You know, lighting was different. We didn't really have an angle of him like lifting his flashlight like that cut um that he has actually i yelled cut and just had the camera rolling it was just like a random take of him dropping the flashlight a little bit that we used so um you know we did it and it worked out and i think it does i think it made the movie much better i think it was just a nice little punch at the end because before it's just kind of flat you know it's kind of flat and i think uh you know we listened to our fans and we we made it happen yeah, I think, again, it's textbook how the guiding hands of our super fans, so we're always thankful for that. So, you know, wrapping up now, I just kind of want to get your final thoughts on, like, you know, the murder house. I think it's very significant of the 10th movie. You know, I think 10 is just a big milestone. You know, anytime you go into a double digits or something there, 
And I think to me, it's us solidifying the model. Um, I think it's a movie. I love the concept. I think it's going to be Murder House 3.0 is going to be top of our list, just in the sense of, I think it's something we're honing in on. Um, and I'm really, really happy with how it turned out. And, you know, the support we're getting now from the super fans with it, I think it's going to really do a lot of work. So what, what's kind of your overall, you know, summary of how you feel about this one? I mean, I think it's a, like story and pacing wise, I think it's a huge step up from Girl in Camera 13. It blows away pretty much anything else that we did. Um, and, it, you know, it really allows us, we're going to get reviews on story and our characters. And I think that's the most valuable feedback we can get. So I'm really excited for that. Um, I know the reviews that are coming right now are mostly from our super fans or people who like our stuff. So they're, um, you know, they're geared towards a higher ratings. But I'm waiting, you know, in a week when we start to get the organic traffic, people who don't really know who we are, who are comparing us to million dollar movies, um, you know, I don't really know how, like what our budget we're working with. I want to see those reviews because those will be super beneficial. Um, but I was very happy with this movie. I was very happy all the way through the process. I was happy with the actors. I think on an indie level, this is the, you know, the, the movie that I try to strive for. Like, this is the area. This is our strike zone. If we can make a whole bunch of movies with different concepts within this budget and within this quality, I think we could start to really, you know, refine our storytelling skills. Um, and I think that getting better characters and a better story and just like getting better with cinematography and special effects and just some of the smaller things I think you're going to start to see these movies just get incrementally better until one finally really clicks um, on all fronts. And then, you know, hopefully that'll be able to take us to the next level. Yeah, I really agree. I'm, I'm excited for it. I think it's just great. I think the turnaround is also really awesome on this one. And you know, it's great being done with the movie. It's great to have one up there, out there, off the plate. Next shapeshifter, we're working on you. We got Into the Forest. We got the open auditions. So if you want to take a look at The Hunt in the Murder House, it is now live on Amazon Prime. It's going to come into a lot more platforms. So stay tuned for that. We'll keep you posted on that. If you want to be part of our amazing community, again, we make movies for our fans, with our fans. Check out our Discord channel. We love to have you there. But always great to review a movie. And until then, we'll have a good one.